Police Squad in color. Starring Leslie Nielsen. Also starring Alan North. And Rex Hamilton as Abraham Lincoln. Tonight's special guest star, Lorne Green. Tonight's episode, The Broken Promise. Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is not everyone gets most best adjectives like that without equivocation. For most people, if you ask them, and I'm talking about America here, David, if we ask what's the funniest movie that you've ever seen, more times than not, you will hear Airplane. Our guest, of course, today is the incredible writer, director. He's a father, he's a son, he's a grandson. The great, legendary David Zucker. Welcome, David. Well, thank you. That's about as good as an introduction as I've ever gotten. So I'd like to have a recording of that to put, you know, by my bedside before I go to sleep. You got it. Well, I, my, certainly the sound of my voice will help you fall asleep, if nothing else. So I, I said grandson, David, and that was very deliberate. Um, we share um, some heritage and some ties to a place in American history uh, that isn't talked about enough, I think. And that's Ellis Island. Right. And it's where your grandmother, Sarah, came through. And it's where my grandfather Bernard Goralski, we all called him Ben. My son, Benny, is named after him. It was my mother's father. And he was the favorite person in my family. And that's life, how life. the name got changed to Garrett. So you anglicized it. Uh, so, no, no, Goralski stayed Goralski. Okay. But, but many did change. I was just, I'm no. just guessing. Oh. You know, I, I don't know anything. Yeah. yeah, no, you're certainly right, though. So many did shorten and change. So I, I'd love to start by talking about your grandmother, Sarah. And I know she was a titanic figure in your life. She was a transitional figure from the old world in Hungary to the new world that your family built in Milwaukee. And we're going to get into all the funny stuff, but I'd love to start there. I know you wrote a book recently about your family that's quite unique and quite special. So let's start our conversation here today, David, by talking about your grandmother, Sarah. Right. Well, you know, she was one of eight brothers and sisters who grew up in this small little village called Hinkovitz in what is now Slovakia. It was Austria-Hungary then. My grandmother always called it Hungary. Anyways, you know, from when we were kids, I was probably seven, eight years old, and I remember her telling stories about how she grew up in Hinkovitz. And, and when we were a little bit older, then she talked about how, how she left. She had to sneak over the border. And it's like, this totally got me intrigued. And then, uh, you know, it, it turned out that she was the only one of her eight brothers and sisters to talk about it. I mean, she was the only one. Uh, they all said, they took the attitude, we're Americans now. We're not, you know, we're not going to talk about the old country. And, but my grandmother did. And so I was the only one of her 10 grandkids who listened. And 
as I got older, I realized that if somebody doesn't record these things and, and retell them, it would be completely lost. And if, and if I thought they had value, maybe somebody else would think they have, it would have value and not necessarily my own kids, but somebody else in the family, my, my grandkids, if I have any eventually. Uh, but I just thought there's value in having this stuff recorded. Absolutely. And you talk about in the book that bridge from the old world to the new world. And I know you've talked about for you and your brother and Jim Abrams, all your collaborators, Pat, that you felt very strongly that growing up where you did in Milwaukee and going to Shorewood, that that really enabled what you would later create comedically. And I know it all ties back to your family and the choice they made to emigrate to that part of the U.S. Well, they, we had other family that was here already in Milwaukee and Kenosha. And that's and my grandmother's father and her, you know, four or five brothers and sisters uh, came first, you know, starting from probably 1904, five, six, seven. And finally, in 09, she came over and they landed in Milwaukee. We're just, you know, and there's there's a you know, pretty sizable Jewish community in Milwaukee, as there was in, you know, Cleveland, Chicago, a lot of these Midwestern city, Omaha. I mean, there, there, there are enough, not like New York and LA, but there were enough. And, but we grew up in this, Milwaukee's still kind of a small town where things came to. There weren't anything coming out of Milwaukee. I mean, I think, um, Orson Welles was from Wisconsin and Liberace was from Milwaukee, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. Nobody knew about it. And Jerry and I and Jim would watch these shows, you know, the untouchables and, uh, mission impossible. And so I think we, we got into a, because we were from the Midwest, it was rather a, a self-deprecating style of humor because we, we, you have to laugh at yourself. And that's what it eventually became, you know, when we, when we started spoofing movies, we would redub them, you know, put our own jokes in the actor's mouths, you know, and it was, and so that, that's kind of what Airplane became because we saw a movie called Zero Hour. I don't know if you're familiar. Of course, of course. You go on, you go on YouTube and type in Airplane Zero Hour, you get scene for scene. It's the same, you know, we took this movie, it was a dead serious melodrama but it was a good plot as it turned out and we just took that and we we added the jokes now this all started as a trio and i know i think you're writing another book now about that trio well we started out in milwaukee as you know doing this little theater called kentucky fried theater and uh we did that for a year in madison near the campus and after a year, it was so successful, we thought, well, we wanted to move out west and try to get on The Tonight Show, which at the time was, that was the biggest thing. If, if we get on The Tonight Show, then we could die. And so we did, we moved out, we loaded up a U-Haul truck, we moved out to LA, started a bigger theater there. And, uh, and we did that for five years until we were able to do Kentucky Fried Movie. That was our, our first movie. And I remember not only an early appearance on The Tonight Show, but another show that's lost in history, Midnight Special. 
We left the Midwest about one year ago now to come out to L.A. and open our little theater. We drove together in Jerry's van. To pass time, we played fun games like this slide of name the license plate. <laughs> and we played who ate the beans for lunch. Jerry insisted on doing all the driving, despite the fact we were driving straight through. He said he'd be able to stay awake as long as he'd smoke cigarettes. The rest of us shot up with Dexedrine. Oh, my God. You saw that? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, yeah, we were on Midnight Special. And with I think it was narrated by a guy named Wolfman Jack, which, I mean, a lot of people don't remember. But he was big stuff then. And... When you were doing those variety shows and during that period in L.A., there were so many people who start off, you know, who then just absolutely blow up. But who else did you see or work with at that time that really made it or folks that you thought might make it and didn't? Well, you know, we we met everybody because, you know, we used to go to the comedy store and see the, the comedians. And we saw Robin Williams there and we saw Jay Leno there. David Letterman, and we, they were acquaintances, not, you know, if I went up to them, I'd have to say, say my name. And then they'd say, oh, yes, of course, you know, but I, and I've met a lot of people that are acquaintances and all I have to say is my name and airplane. And then they, you know, they, they warm up quickly. So it's nice. And I'm, I'm as much of a, you know, starstruck human as anyone. So but that, I, that must've been a really nice, almost fraternity or sorority with all those, you know, young performers at that part of your career, just trying to make it. Right. Everybody was growing up at the, uh, there at the comedy store at the same time. However, we were not really regulars at the com comedy store. We went there enough so that we became fans of David Letterman, certainly. And there was another guy named Pat Proft, who we loved. We thought he was really, really funny. And then when an opening came up in the, uh, in the show, we, uh, we, a guy quit with only four days to go till the show. So we went to, went that night to the comedy store, talked to Prof and worked him in. And he's really been with us ever since. I'm still writing with him. But right. the book that I'm working on now with Jerry and Jim is, is called Surely You Can't Be Serious. And it's really the story of ZAZ and how we went from Milwaukee and not knowing anybody to uh, Hollywood and then figured out we kind of figured it out along the way, how to direct, how to do a movie, how to raise money, the whole thing. So you, you go from Kentucky Fried Theater at home, you open a new theater in LA, you're performing, you're sort of part of the comedy store scene, but not, you know, you're not there seven days a week, you're doing other things. And, and then all of a sudden you make a movie. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, we were performing live on stage and it was called Kentucky Fried Theater. We ran a show, a show called My Nose because just so our, our weekly listing in the LA Times would, would read, My Nose runs continuously. And we actually have that clip from the LA Times. You know, we did all sorts of stuff. And, you know, so we ran the show for five years and we, we, we actually thought we were going to be a performing group originally. And that's why we were on the Midnight Special and we did get on The Tonight Show twice. And we're on some other shows, but it just wasn't working as a performing group. So we decided we wanted to write a movie. And so we wrote the first draft 
of Airplane after we discovered this wonderful movie called Zero Hour. And then we couldn't raise money for that. So Landis, John Landis came to, he was the director of Animal House and a million other movies. And he came to our show and because we invited him and he said, why don't you do a movie of the show? And so that's how Kentucky Fried Movie was created. So we did that. It was a good thing we did because we learned how to direct from Landis. And then we went back, rewrote Airplane. Uh, and then uh, by this time we knew how to direct. So every studio turned it down, of course, except one. There was one guy, Michael Eisner, who was the president of Paramount at the time. And he said, yeah, this sounds good. I, we want to make this picture. So, and then the fight was to try to let them permit us to direct it. And uh, so, we, you know, we had to absolutely just win every fight along the way. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit drinking. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. And his number two, as I recall, was Jeffrey Katzenberg. It was Jeff Katzenberg, who really was assigned specifically to this movie. And Katzenberg was uh, brilliant because he assigned a, a special story guy to, because Katzenberg was all about story. And so he assigned a guy named Tom Perry on their staff to uh, help us craft the story. And that's where all the flashbacks in Airplane, which concerning the love story between uh, Stryker and Elaine, uh, that that came from from the Paramount rewrite. I mean, I can't say enough about the studio. Usually people complain about the studio comes in and ruins everything. Paramount at that time, and I don't know how it is today, but you know, or any of the studios, but Paramount was just so great. You know, with Eisner, Katzenberg, Diller, uh, Frank Mancuso, Dawn Steele was there. It was an all-star team. All these people who were on the staff there later became heads of their own studios. And they were all pretty young in their careers. And you were very young we were in, very, your, we were, in your we were career. In our, uh, you know, low 30s. I think Jerry was 31. I was 33. Incredible. And 1980, airplane. Flight 209er, you are cleared for takeoff. Roger. Huh? LA departure frequency 123.9er. Roger. Huh? Request vector, over. What? Flight 209er, clear for vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Made for about three million bucks, as I recall. Yes. Grossed about 160 million. Right. Did you have an inkling then, your brother, Jim, Pat, your writing partner, did you have any inkling at all then what you had created? Um, yes. <laughs> the the answer is yes. And I'll tell you why. I mean, we we invented this genre of airplane, you know, doing straight, not using comedians. It was like Columbus saying, you know, there's land out there and everybody's saying, you're crazy. You can't do that. And so we kept telling people and we got turned down by every studio in town, as I as I mentioned. And uh, we 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 kept saying this is going to be a big hit. It's going to be a big hit. And we actually believed it and because we believed we had essentially machine guns in the Civil War. We just, we knew we were going to just crush it. So, so 
when it actually happened, we weren't surprised and not out of being arrogant or anything, but it's just that, you know, it, it, this one, I, as a, it was an idea that we totally were committed to and believed in. And, but what we didn't realize is that it would last for at least 40 years. And here it's 40 years later and the thing is still funny. And there's a lot of just classic uh, elements about it, which is wonderful. How much of it, David, do you think you owe? Clearly you were all students of comedy and comedic history because you pay homage to so much. You know, I was just watching, uh, you know, when Leslie Nielsen is doing Mo from the Three Stooges, you know, and, and you see it all in the, in the movies, how much you revere, you know, the, the early icons of comedy. But how much of that style in Airplane really owes itself to you as an improviser? and to what you all learned and not just quality jokes, but quantity of jokes. Well, we, we learned on stage from doing the Kentucky Fried Theater shows on stage for five years. We learned what audiences laugh at, we learned timing, and we learned pace. And we learned on stage that, well, we never wanted to be on stage when there was like silence, that was death to us. So we kept things going on a kind of a flywheel. It's easier to uh, make a joke pay off if it's, you know, in, in such a run of laughter that everything seems to be impossibly funny. If there, it's easier to keep an audience laughing. And so that's, and we, we, we transferred that to airplane and then it was, it was always surprising to me the way reviewers and every commenter on it or a feature story focused on, there are so many jokes, it's crammed with jokes. And we, that wasn't something that we said, okay, now we're gonna cram a movie with jokes. It just, it was, it was from our live stage show. Everything was either a setup or a punchline. And we got used to that rhythm and we transferred it to airplane and then we take the movie out and preview it, and we trim it to the actual laughs uh, of, of, of a real audience. And the casting, and you referred to this about sort of your own conviction and, and belief in what you were trying to do and why you thought it would be successful. And by the way, you ended up being completely right. The, the casting of people like Robert Stack and Peter Graves and Lloyd Bridges, of course, Leslie Nielsen. Slasher, have you seen my pigeon? <clears throat> pigeon? What pigeon? What are you doing? I'm uh, just contemplating my next move. Your bishop is exposed. It's these pants. I usually wear a uh, fuller cut. Uh... You're all men. I like that in my men. You're coming on to me big time, sister. You're praying like a kitten with a fresh mouse, but we got a problem. You're Jewish? No. You're Rocco's girl. And in my book, that chapter is called Look But Don't Touch. Talk about that and the early conversations when you and your brother and Jim, when you first decided that's how you were going to cast the movie. Well, you know, the jokes, think of the jokes. Um, uh, surely you can't be serious. And the other character says, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. 
And don't call me Shirley. Then think about Chevy Chase or Bill Murray doing it. You know, those were the comedians of the day. And it probably would still have been funny, but I think it's 20% less because those guys are wisecracking guys and really funny and everything. But, um, and, and especially even a better example than that is Peter Graves. The guy says, uh, um, have you ever been up on a plane before? No. And then Peter Graves says, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Now, if Chevy Chase or Bill Murray say, says it, or Jim Carrey, it's just hundred percent creepy. It's just, that's, a pedophile, but if it's Peter Graves saying it, the audience gets that we're making fun of the image, the straight-laced image of movie airline pilots. And all the stuff we get away with that, all of Leslie Nielsen's stuff, um, Lloyd Bridges, I picked the wrong week to quit smoking, drinking, you know, amphetamines. It's, it's a whole different thing if it's these straight, straight actors. Um, and, and Robert Stack is so great. He's got his sunglasses on and he takes them off and there's another pair of sunglasses there. If it's Bur Bill Murray, it's clowning around. When it's Robert Stack, it's a completely different atmosphere. It's a completely different level. No, absolutely. Just, just so brilliant. And most of them, I would imagine, embrace the comedy. They did. I mean... It was very, it's a, it's a good question because, uh, you know, when Leslie read it, he got it immediately. He said to his agent, we found out later, don't tell those guys, but I'd pay them to do this because Leslie was a closet comedian waiting to get out, trapped in all those straight, straight roles for 20 years. And uh, Robert Stack wanted to know, well, who else was coming to the party? He, wanted, he didn't want to be the only guy. He got immediately that we were making fun of him. And uh, Peter Graves threw the script in the trash saying, this is the worst piece of garbage I've ever read. And so Howard Koch, our executive producer, fortunately, you know, knew all these guys. And he had Peter come and said, Peter, just come in and meet the boys. And uh, he probably, from reading the script, he probably maybe imagined that we were these drugged out weirdos, you know, high on whatever. But we you know what we were is very straight, Midwestern boys. And uh, I think he trusted us after that, or he figured he would, he would try it uh, because we were nice boys. And uh, maybe more because of Howard Koch. Howard was, was 62 at the time, you know, and, you know, an old Hollywood icon. He had been president of the studio, president of the motion picture academy, all this. And Lloyd was different. Lloyd signed on, but he tried to make sense of his lines. And it wasn't until Stack came on and said, Lloyd, they're not listening to us. Just, you know, there's a spear going into the wall and a watermelon crashing behind you just to keep talking. So, you know, it was, it was interesting how, how it all came together. So one of the things, uh, David, that I love to do on Great Minds is there are certain names that don't get talked about as much. Um, we started our conversation talking about Ellis Island. I think that's something in America that you can't talk about too much. Um, Michael Eisner, most of us know his story. Jeffrey Katzenberg, most of us know his story. Howard Koch, and you went there before I even referenced it. He was a real giant in Hollywood. Talk a little more about Howard because he's not talked about as much. Well, at the time... You know, we're, we're, we're at Paramount where these three guys, we're young guys, we've, 
you know, we had, we had written one movie, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie, but we never directed before. And Paramount was very uh, skeptical of our ability to direct. And they even shopped it to other directors like Bud Yorkin and uh, even John Landis. And so the only way that they figured they could do it was by assigning us Howard Koch to be the godfather of this whole production. And so and they meant for Howard to be their man, Paramount's man on the airplane set. And it turned out that he was our man at Paramount because he embraced us immediately. He got it. And I, I can't, I can't stress how enough how lucky we were to have landed at Paramount. And it was, you know, Michael Eisner was part of it. Jeff Katzenberg was part of it. And Howard Koch was also a big part of it because at everything that the studio would send in suggestions for casting, uh, you know, comedians. And we said, no, we can't do that. We're, we're going we're gonna to walk. We're going to, you know, we're gonna, we would kind of panic. And Howard says, no, just wait, let me handle it. And so he would call the agents and managers of these people and saying, you're being given the airplane script by Paramount, but uh, it's really not for your client. You know, and this is the executive producer saying it. And so he deflected a lot of stuff for, for us. And just, and then we, we they, Paramount wasn't allowed, oh, the Directors Guild was not allowing us to take a three-man director credit. And Howard helped us a lot with that. And we had, we had to go to board meetings of the, the DGA and, uh, and keep applying. And finally we did get the, um, we, we got the waiver from the DGA. I mean, it was one thing after another. And, and David, all these years later, 40 some odd years later, when you reflect back, you, I'm gonna guess it was a little over probably two months or so at that time to film a movie. It was, it's, I think it was about uh, eight weeks, I think. Okay. What, when you reflect on it, you know, you want to, you, what gives you a smile when you look back at something you were shooting, a, a particular scene? I know your mom was in the film and has been in yeah. many of your films. Yeah. You know, I think about little things that are so subtle that nobody even, it didn't even get laughs. I mean, you know, uh, Leslie says to Julie Haggerty, stewardess, you're a member of this crew. Can you face some unpleasant facts? And Julie says, no. And then he keep, Leslie keeps going, well, we have to find someone back there. You know, the lives of everybody is in danger. So he just goes on and there's just such little touches like that. And then some of the, some of the material that gets big laughs, I just, uh, I'm very proud of how we did it and that nobody else could have directed it like that because in the, uh, there was a part where we cut back, there's some turbulence and Bob Hayes is fighting with the controls and we cut back to the passenger cabin and Leslie looks up and says, what the hell's going on up there? And then, but in the frame are two uh, women's feet in stirrups and he's got right. a speculum, you know? It's just like, we don't, we don't point it out. We don't cut to it. And a lot of things, that we learned about directing is not to cut to stuff in comedy. You have to let the audience see it. And that's what gives them such, you know, the appreciation. Stuff is in the frame. There's, there's another part, part where Johnny 
the air controller played by the wonderful Steven Stucker uh, gives a press conference and he's here, you see all the microphones pressed up in the frame and, and then an ice cream cone put up in the frame. And just, I, I don't know if everybody sees it, but, but there's, those are the things that I love to, to watch about the movie. Amazing. And you also cast someone who wasn't an actor in a pretty prominent role in the film, and that was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right. And uh, that was another fortunate thing that happened was that, you know, we wanted an athlete and because we, we had noticed that in movies, these athletes were stuck in these movies and they're obviously not actors. And so we wanted to have somebody actually call it out, have the little boy say, hey, the emperor has no clothes. So uh, it was originally written for Pete Rose, but all it was was the kid saying, hey, you're Pete Rose, you play baseball for the Cincinnati Reds. And he said, no, or something. And that was the end. And fortunately, Pete Rose couldn't do it because uh, he either didn't read the script or it was baseball season. That's what the answer we got. He was unavailable and he, he wasn't available. So we got, uh, we got Kareem and then we wrote that whole great run for him with a kid, you know, and this was, this transformed Kareem's image. He was known as this aloof guy. And, you know, and I don't know if he was aloof because he wasn't being nice or because just he was shy. And he was, he was quiet on the set too. But Kareem said it changed his life because uh, people were writing about him as though he was this, you know, asshole and, you know, and, and not, not a good guy. But to see him absolutely participating in this, uh, making fun of his image. And, you know, he had been accused of that stuff of, you know, not running up and down court and stuff. And so he got to answer that. And then, you know, in a comedy, it just, he said it just changed his life. Amazing. What a great, great story. We've run into him since then. You know, we've done some ads. We did a series of Wisconsin tourism ads and he was in it. And I've run into him just here at places. And uh, he's always been, you know, very happy to see me or he's a great actor. I think he probably is happy to see you. So I want to talk about The Naked Gun, of course, and some of the other incredible, credible films uh, and other projects. But I, I, I'd love to just ask you about, you know, a topic that's on my mind quite a bit, and that's that it's become harder to be funny, that comedy has gotten harder, that scrutiny is applied to everything, and we're in such a divisive time. A lot of the jokes in a lot of your films early on, you know, Mel Brooks said, if they cut out everything that was politically incorrect out of Blazing Saddles, the whole film would be six minutes. Right. What's your take on where we are today? And do you think it's harder to be funny? Well, it, it isn't, it isn't. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of Q and A's when we screen the movie. And invariably, I get asked the question, could airplane be made today? And uh, one, one, one night I answered, sure, sure it could, just without the jokes. And, you know, it gets a laugh and I, and I use that line all the time now. But it, we screen airplane and it's all politically incorrect, but audiences laugh just like 
They do laugh at blazing saddles. I mean, but it's the studio executives and the gatekeepers who are so frightened. And these are, you know, they get hired to be frightened. And they're, 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 that's why they're called suits. Now, I make an exception for people like Michael Eisner and Jeff Katzenberg because they were never frightened. They, 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 would, they were doing what they, they went on their own instinct, seat of the pants execs. And I don't think they have those anymore. And so uh, I have a couple of scripts now. Um, one is a spoof on, uh, you know, the born identity, James Bond and Mission Impossible genre, which has never been done in our style, but it's as though I'm starting out all over as an unknown. So it's, you know, they don't, and, and I wanted to do a sequel to uh, Naked Gun, which could be done. And that they won't, they won't hear any of my ideas because, I mean, you'd think that they should listen to the creator of these things, but I, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of ageism. And uh, I mean, I happen to be an old white guy, maybe that's bad, you know, who knows? But it's difficult to get anyone to say yes to anything. So, uh, but the stuff spoof still works if it's done right. And, you know, they, they thought spoof was dead and the Wayans did a scary movie. And the Wayans did a great job of scary movie, at least scary movie one. Uh, scary movie two didn't do as well, but then you know, the studio called me to do three and four, and I was able to do those. People love that stuff. They want to see, and the scripts I have now, I don't think get into that contemporary stuff, you know, the, the PC, and I don't think they violate any of those things because we're spoofing movies, so that's okay. Uh, I think the executives don't understand this kind of humor, but audiences do so you said ageism. Let's stay there for a second. There are more places today, arguably, who are in the business of creating and financing great content than I think either of us have seen in our lifetimes with the whole advent of the streaming world. Yeah, right. Has not helped you. No, it's just I get no everywhere. It's like, I, I mean, but, you know, I... I don't get discouraged because when we were taking around airplane for five years, everybody kept saying no. And, and so I'm kind of looking for a Michael Eisner. There's one guy out there who will say yes uh, and, and just take the material for what it is. It's, it's funny. And uh, well, one of my movies, which is a film noir spoof, uh, some people at, at one company read, they loved it. And so, and they were going to take it to the bigger financing company who also indicate that, indicated that they loved it. And I don't know if they've read it yet, uh, but anyways, those executives left. So I don't know. I'm still, I'm still waiting. <laughs> so, but you know who's my idol? Clint Eastwood. He's like 97 or something, and he's still, he's still directing. He hasn't, hasn't lost a beat. And so I still, I think I still have, I'm very young compared to that. Absolutely. And clearly the passion and drive is as high, is as high as it's ever been. And, and it, more in answer to your question, you know, it, it's harder to find movie comedy just sucks now. It's, it's, it, there's, there's nothing good. Uh, at least I haven't seen anything since bridesmaids and bad grandpa. I mean, this is years ago. 
saw anything that made me laugh. And but on TV, there's there's some really great stuff. There's have you seen the Impractical Jokers? Yes. Okay, I think they're hysterical, and they make me laugh so hard that you know I I can only watch 20 minutes of that stuff at a time because I'm literally choking. So I'm glad there's some you know young guys that came around that that can do it. They not in movies necessarily, but They've done it on TV and it's, I tell everybody I can to, to watch their stuff. You know, I know they gear previews to sort of sync with what the feature is. Um, and my son and I went to see Kong versus Godzilla. Is it a comedy? It, well, it, it was not a comedy, but, oh. but we went I, to I see, <laughs> we went to see the, the recent Kong versus Godzilla movie, yeah. which was very entertaining. And the previews, and there were six or seven of them, were all movies like Mortal Kombat and all these other th- franchises, many of which I've never heard of because I'm not the demo, but they were all big fighting movies. And my son, Benny, looked at me and said, Dad, it's just not, it's not a great time for comedy. Oh, you know? And, and you said the same thing. But in other genres, comedy is thriving. What's going on with comedy in Hollywood? Well, I think it's kind of what I was saying about it's the gatekeepers and the suits who are frightened. They're, they're frightened. And then, but I've got, I'm, as I'm saying, I have these two scripts that will be funny all the way through and don't have, they don't necessarily have to cross those PC lines. And so I feel like I'm waving my arms in the end zone. I'm open. And, and the quarterback isn't passing to me. So you know, that's, I, I hate to be, you know, kvetching uh, about it, but that's, that's what it is. But meanwhile, I have so many great things I'm doing in my life that, uh, you know, I'm not unhappy. So I, I just think I could be working. Right. No, I, I hear you loud and clear. Um, you clearly still have a passion for spoof and for comedy. Are there other things that are on your plate or in the back of your mind that you want to get to? I'm pitching a couple of TV shows. One is um, a TV show based on basketball. And, you know, the premise is we set up real teams around the country and uh, treat it like real sports. And again, it's spoof. It's a spoof on professional sports. And, uh, and, and that's a wonderful idea. But, uh, you know, getting somebody to say yes, uh, here I'm coming in. I guess I'm an old white guy. You know, it's like, so terrible and then you watch you watch on what's on tv it's all crap it's just there's nothing funny except for impractical jokers and then the other and the and the other thing i'm pitching is a reality spoof uh spoof on reality shows so we'll see what happens but if it doesn't happen i i i refuse to be unhappy Oh, clearly, yeah. clearly. I saw you a couple clips. Um, we went up to the National Comedy Center in Jamestown a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. And I saw you on a couple of clips and the 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 celebration of comedy, what that does in the genre. It reminds you, especially with what we've all been through the last year, just how powerful that healing power of laughter is, that it really is a, a bomb, a, 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 you know, it's a medicine for so many of us that's unmatched in any other aspect of our lives. Right. No, it's just, and I don't punch out at 5 p.m. I, you know, wherever I go, I'm 
doing routines. I just, you know, I do improvisation with with strangers. You know, I, I talk to people that I meet and I, you know, I, I just, and I always get laughs. I'm on an elevator. I just, you know, I'm making people laugh. That's all I want to do. I don't want to do, I don't want to become like Woody Allen and go serious. Although, you know, he's, he's been great at it, but um, I don't really have a desire to do that. But I, Right. I love that. You, you never want to grow up. And I love that. I never want to grow up. And, you know, I, I live my, my personal life. I live in a crazy house with a bunch of people. And, you know, I want uh, some of whom are uh, part of a rock and roll band, you know, so, and we, and they, they record songs in the house and it's just, it's amazing. We're going to have a, a big party uh, later in the month. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. You're like a, a, a 21st century wavy gravy, I think you are. I, I think so, yeah. Uh, that's fabulous. So I, I'd be remiss not to ask you about some of the people that you've worked with over the years, some names that we all know, some names less so. Uh, I always thought George Kennedy was so, so funny. Really sweet. I mean, he was funny because he, he did the lines, you know, just very seriously as though he were in one of those airport movies. And in fact, we wanted him for uh, Airplane, but uh, Universal wouldn't, uh, you know, they told him, if you do this spoof, you're not going to be any more in any more of the airplane, airport movies. Anyway, so, but he was a sweetheart and, you know, always, always fun to work with. Amazing. And what about Priscilla Presley? Priscilla Presley, just such you can't believe that she was married to Elvis and went through all this stuff and still she's it's like she lived next door to me in Milwaukee on Wildwood Avenue in in Shore it's like so just normal and sweet and, and not not at all Hollywood and I, but I'll never forget the first table read we had of the Naked Gun and uh, we cast her because we had seen her on, uh, I think she was on Dallas. I mean, she never came in to read for it. So we just said, we want her. That's sexy. You know, Leslie Nielsen, you know, is playing opposite Priscilla Presley. That sounded cool. You know, because we, we also looked at Bo Derek at the same time. But uh, we cast Priscilla and she comes in for the table read. She was very nervous. And she said, you know, I don't know how to be, excuse me, I don't know how to be funny. I don't, you know, I'm, I, she thought I'd be disappointed. And I said, you don't have to be funny. Just read the lines as though you were in a drama or you were in Dallas. And, and I said, what is my, my most said direction to any actors at the, you know, the first week of shooting, I say, let the lines do the work. So, you know, to, to Leslie Nielsen, he doesn't have to be funny. It's not even common ti comic timing. It's, it's dramatic timing. And he just says, I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. And if you're Leslie Nielsen, he just pulls that off. He just, he just does, he can do that in his sleep. So, um, you know, I marvel at these people like Jim Carrey or Eddie Murphy. And those guys are really funny. And Chevy Chase, I thought, was marvelous in his movies. And Bill Murray. Um, but our actors don't have to be funny like that. You know, uh, 
Well, that's that's a tribute to the writing. I think the, the writing has to be good. The jokes have to be good. But part of what helped the jokes is that we had these straight guys having Robert Stack say something or Leslie Nielsen. And we'd be remiss not to also talk about Leslie. Leslie, yeah. Well, you know, he, he came in for the first read of Airplane, for the first table read, and we thought, we thought, well, he's good, but it wasn't really the Leslie Nielsen we knew from Poseidon Adventure and some of these other really straight things. I think, he, as I remember it, and this is many, many years ago, uh, he was putting a little spin on it. Because he was, when our first meeting, he said, well, I could be, you know, I've been in comedies. I've been in, I was in MASH. And Jerry and Jim and I looked at each other. And we said, well, we'll pretend that you never said that. Because we didn't want to, we don't want to know from any comedies. Anyway, so we sent him home with a VHS tape of Zero Hour. And we said, we told him, you know, focus in on this, the doctor character. And then he came back the next day. And he he got it. He had it cold. It was, it, and that's who you see on that thing. He just no winking at all. That's what we we wanted. No winking. And Stack had it just naturally. He just he just said it. He knew, Stack knew what we were doing, but didn't necessarily have confidence in the movie. He didn't think the movie was was going to be as big of a hit as it was. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And talk about Leslie's evolution from that, you know, relatively minor part in Airplane to a lead role in the iconic Naked Gun films. Well, in after we did um, Airplane, we couldn't figure out how to do a movie again. We didn't we couldn't find a zero hour, but we we used to love this old television show. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of it called M Squad. It was starring Lee Marvin. Oh, okay. Okay. You, you, I'm pretty good on these things, but you just got me. Yeah, this was in 1958, 59, around then. And it was a black and white film noir television show, totally straight, serious, starring Lee Marvin. It had the exact cast of you know, the Leslie Nielsen character, the George Kennedy character. And then, so we made a, a, a TV show out of that called Police Squad. And that ran for six episodes and ABC just couldn't cancel it fast enough. And there were only three networks, but it was, wasn't really right for TV. It should have been a movie. And so, you know, we went and did Top Secret. We went, we did Ruthless People. And then we thought, damn, we want to, this, this idea of M squad, police squad is still a good idea. Let's do it as a feature. And so that's how we started uh, naked, the Naked Gun series with, with Leslie. And has right alongside Airplane stood the test of time. And similarly, the only other movie I can think of from that, you know, is a couple years earlier, about a decade earlier, The Sting, where there are so many lines and gestures that are still part of pop culture today. That's true of Naked Gun and, and the character you created for Leslie Nielsen. Right, no, it's uh, part, of the, part of what it is, is, it does stand the test of time because and any, any of the contemporary references in Airplane, I cringe, we all cringe at now. 
you know, we, we mentioned Ronald Reagan or, you know, some Anita Bryant. It's like, and, and so, and for the scripts I'm writing now, we make sure none, none of that, none of that is, is going to be included. We, we, the, the movies that we, we've got now, and it's called uh, Counterintelligence, spelled with a J. And all it, it'll, it'll be as funny 40 years from now as it is, as it would be today. I was talking to um, Alan Zweibel, a great writer. Yeah. And um, Alan felt that part of what the cancel culture environment has done is that it's created almost a self-policing of writers. And he was upset about that, that you can no longer start with a true white blank piece of paper and that you go into something creatively, giving yourself parameters so that you don't offend anybody. Do you agree with him? Disagree with him? No, I, no, I agree, but it's, and in fact, you won't offend anybody, but it's the suits who are frightened and they think that it'll offend people. So you can't, and then stand up comics, I, I don't know if they can really, uh, there's a few of them, like, uh, Andrew Schultz, have you, have you heard of him? Mm -hmm. My son tells me about the, these people and I watch them and he's pretty good. And uh, um, a guy named Maniscalco or- Yeah, Sebastian, yeah, he's very funny. He's funny. There are some people who really do break through and somehow they're finding material that, you know, they can connect with audiences. Maybe they don't have to go through a, uh, uh, through a, a gatekeeper, but what you're asking about, and I think I, I've changed the subject, but it's it, it's for Alan Zwiebel to, you know, if he wants to write for TV or or movies, it, it is tough because there are these gatekeepers, and that's why everything's horrible. And somehow, uh, you know, the impractical jokers can exist outside that because they they do pranks, and it's not, they, they don't have to censor themselves. And, and my scripts in spoof, whether it's the basketball TV show or the film noir piece or the Mission Impossible spoof, um, those, I think those exist outside that. But I, I just think the suits don't get this kind of humor anymore, but audiences do. Yeah, no, they, they absolutely do. So, David, just to wrap up, I, I, you are such an icon uh, of comedy and own the spoof genre as much as anyone this country has ever produced. When you look either early, and you can answer any way you like, or all the way up to today, who out there in the genre do you respect, do you like, do you uh, try to learn from, or just inspires you? I'll tell you, the Wayans did it. The Wayans, uh, I think they they nailed it in their first movie. I don't I don't know that I've seen their other movies. Uh, I don't know if uh, White Chicks is a spoof. I think that was successful, but it, it may not be a spoof. But when they did spoof, you know, at least for that that first scary movie, it was they were successful. And but nobody else. I mean, Mel Brooks has long since stopped doing it. Some his early um, uh, Blazing Saddles was good and Young Frankenstein. 
was good. And and Woody Allen, of course, his early movies were very funny. And we kind of, uh, you know, who who we kind of pattern ourselves, uh, who inspired us was mainly Woody Allen, I think, in Bananas, Sleeper, you know, Take the Money and Run, those early comedies that he did, and the Marx Brothers. You know, the Marx Brothers had that wild, um, uh, crazy anarchy. And, but yet, you know, their best movie was Night at the Opera and they had a good story because they had a good story. And it wasn't just a succession of, of sketches. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, it's a great list. The Pythons had some very funny things, but they never did a complete great movie. You know, their movies were mainly an assembly of sketches. Like Albert Brooks never did an entire movie of, you know, that had a first act, second act, and third act. But but he had some hysterical things. And the Pythons didn't even get that far, really. But they had, their TV show was great, and some of their movies had great sketches in them. But our best movies were, uh, and my best stuff, were, were movies which had a great story. Like, you know, Airplane, the first couple of naked guns um, and and uh, and the, and the scary movie three was great um, those are the and ruthless people that had a great story it was the best the people audiences want to want to see a good story absolutely absolutely well David this was such a, a incredible uh, joy to talk to you and I uh, can't thank you enough and I'm betting that you're going to get some more stuff made. All right. I hope so. Yes, I'm rooting for myself. You and me both. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Tape was very entertaining.